You ever see those ads on TV that just ring true to life? The um, advertisers get paid a lot of money for trying to capture their audience in those ways and there's an ad on TV at the moment that has captured me as an audience. It uh, shows a father and two sons, one primary aged and one about to leave home, wandering around a supermarket and he's telling his son where to you know, find all the specials and, and that sort of thing and they get to the checkout and he says, now you need one of these in your wallet and the son says something like, a wallet? I don't carry one of those. And I thought, I've had that exact experience with my son, um, with uh, someone experiencing a, a, a home lever in recent days. Uh, those sorts of stories are, are popping up all over the place for me. And uh, you know it's been a little bit difficult for me to say goodbye to my boy. Uh, a few years ago there was uh, another ad, I think Sam Stozer was the, uh, the celebrity in it, and, uh, and it had Dad ringing up Sam saying, Sam, are you looking after yourself? And Sam pulls a frozen meal out of the freezer, it's got a certain brand, I think it was Lean Cuisine, Good advertising, wasn't it? And she's like, yes, Dad, I'm looking after myself uh, as she puts the, the meal into the freezer and, uh, and begins to take care of her most basic of needs. Phineas read for us earlier uh, from Mark chapter 3, uh, reading from verse 20. And it paints for us maybe something of a similar picture. Uh, I imagine that Jesus has left, been out of home for, for some time now, but... But still his mother and his brothers are, are concerned about whether he's taking care of himself. Uh, they hear that he's so busy in this new ministry that he's got that he hasn't even got time to eat. And so they leave home as a, as a family to, to come and meet up with Jesus and say, come on, Jesus, you're not even taking care of yourself. Um, why don't you come with us and, uh, and we will stop you from, well suffering physically but also suffering maybe in your reputation as people are beginning to think you're out of your mind. I want to probe that question a little bit because it's a theme that comes up um, fairly often through the Gospels and the ministry of, of Jesus, uh, how he takes care of himself and those around him. Uh, but there's a much bigger theme that we're going to explore as well and uh, I think it's an answer that, uh, to, to one of those questions that, that many of us ask of ourselves at one point in our life. Um, but in answer to it, there's also a great encouragement that as we look to God, we have everything that we need. And so I want to ask that God would be answering those questions for us and teaching us this morning. Let us pray. Almighty God, we call out to you as our loving Heavenly Father the one who meets our needs, the one who draws us to the table and, and cares for us in fellowship with himself and his son. Lord, we pray as we open your word that we would hear your voice speaking to us, that as we read the, the teachings of your son, that we would understand them, that we would be able to apply them to our lives, and that as we hear of Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, that we might understand uh, his power and his work in our lives and uh, that we might be not just receiving from you but active in serving you in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Jesus' mother and brothers have left home. They haven't quite arrived yet, but we already know from, from Mark's testimony what it is that they're going to come and say to Jesus. Uh, he's out of his mind. Um, we, we need to, to come and just draw him aside and, and talk a bit of sense to him. But speaking of Jesus as being a bit crazy, it's the smallest of uh, insults that Jesus is about to face. For we read in verse 22 that the scribes that came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of, by the prince of demons he is casting out demons. He's accused here of more than madness. He's accused of being possessed by the enemy himself. I want to ask you this morning, if you were heading out into the big wide world and faced with all of its many temptations and dangers, which of those do you think would be the worst? Which do you think, if you went down that path, there's no turning back from it? Some of us look back at periods of, of times in our own lives and think, now I really went the wrong way that day. I was really going off track. I knew, maybe, where, where God wanted me to be, but I, I was the furthest that I feel that I could ever be from that. And even as I sit here now, I wonder whether there is forgiveness for me. Some of you might be thinking those thoughts about your own adult children in the world. I wonder if the choices that they've made now are such that there is no coming back for, for, for them. Maybe that, that Satan has got such a hold of, of them that, that God's work is just not possible for them. For Jesus being accused as, as one who is working by Satan is being cast as, as one who comes with the authority and the power of God but, but is seen by his critics as being completely lost. Jesus addresses that question first and then goes on to address, now is there something that a person can do that would put them in a place of being completely unforgivable from, by God. The first question is, well, can the enemy come and be by his own power the one who casts out demons? Now, the interesting thing here is that the scribes have not come down and said, now, Jesus, we've heard that you're doing some things, but we just don't believe what it is that you're doing. If I was to hear of these stories of a Messiah who's come to the streets of Gloucester and he's casting out demons, I think my criticism or critical spirit would be such that I don't know that that's exactly how you could describe it. Maybe there's people who are uh, feeling a bit better about themselves or maybe there's some people who have been cured from diseases but those things, those matters of the spiritual world and casting out demons and that sort of thing, I, I don't know that I buy into that quite, you know, quite to that extent. Well, the scribes had no queries or qualms about that. They'd heard that Jesus was casting out demons and they believed that he was doing so. They'd seen it with his own eyes and already, though we're only a couple of chapters into Mark, we see that Jesus' ministry is primarily, when he goes into a new area, meeting those um, those who are affected by demons. I mean primarily, not because that's his 
main purpose, but that's the first people that he seems to encounter. Those who are demon-possessed are the ones who greet him, and the demons are wanting to say to everyone, I know who you are. You are Jesus, the Son of... And Jesus stops them and silences them and sends them out. In a way, already we've seen that there is a, a power battle going on. These demons want to exercise some authority over Jesus by saying, we know who you are. And Jesus shows his power over them by silencing them and sending them out. And as the scribes come, they don't deny that this is what Jesus has been doing. They say he is, he is uh, casting out demons, but he is doing so by the power of the prince of demons. Jesus' reply is, how can Satan cast out Satan? If what you acknowledge that what I am doing is good and is powerful, don't, uh, why would you attribute those works to be the work of Satan? And he begins by uh, he, teaching them in parables. And I know our, our teenagers on a Friday night are looking at some of the parables that Jesus taught. This isn't one of the classic parables that you would go turning to when you think, now what are the parables of Jesus and how do they apply to my life? But it's a parable nonetheless. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And the people know these things to be true. Yes, if a kingdom's divided against itself, it can't stand. Yes, if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And we as readers can look at that as well and go, yes, if there's a country at war with itself, they're in the weakest position uh, that they have ever been in. And if a family is at war with itself, well, we have great fears for that family. We may not have had much experience of civil wars, but there wouldn't be a person here who has not had some experience of, of a family that uh, threatens to be fractured as it turns on in on itself and wars are, are fought within the home. And so Jesus is building the argument. The kingdom cannot stand, the house cannot stand, and if Satan has risen up against himself, he is divided and he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Now, he's not proclaiming the end of Satan that we know is to come. He's simply making a, a logical argument at this point to say that if the prince of demons was coming into your area, sending out demons, releasing people from demons, he's really working against himself. So it's not logical, it's not sensible that you would come and present this sort of an argument that Satan would be working in order to cast out Satan. He says in verse 26, If Satan has risen against himself, he is divided and he cannot stand and is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now if you pick that out as a parable in itself and you say to people, what does it mean? They might say, oh, Jesus is promoting uh, a life of crime. Um, if you want to be successful as a thief, just Tie people up before you rob their possessions. And he's not saying that, of course. What he's saying is Satan, the enemy, the evil one, he has control over these regions that I'm going into to preach the good news. And I could preach the good news, but it would have no effect if the strong man was still there taking control of people's lives. And so the first thing I will do when I come into an area is I will bind the strong man. 
I will take those who are under the oppression of the evil one and I will release them from that oppression. And then I will heal them. And then I will teach them. And then they will believe the good news. It's the pattern of the ministry of Jesus. And so he not only makes the logical argument, but for us who maybe are unfamiliar with with seeing ministry of this sort, he shows us into the, the spiritual realm what it is that is actually taking place. That the enemy has hold of people's lives and I have come to release that hold and to release them that they may believe and trust in me. And so he defends his ministry. And so he turns the accusation of his accusers around so that they might see that if they are to acknowledge his power over the works of the enemy, well then they must acknowledge that that work does not come from the enemy, but comes from God. And then he gives them this warning. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. Whatever blasphemies they utter, and whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What a great encouragement and a great warning. A great encouragement to say, no matter what you have done, no matter what blasphemies you have uttered, you may have lived many years in your life saying, I don't believe that God stuff. You God-botherers, stop bothering me. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe what you're saying. I hate God. God listens to those things and is willing to forgive that person. For he knows that in our hearts we are all enemies of his. There are times in each of our lives where we've said, God, I don't want you on the throne of my life. I don't want you taking control. I don't want to hear your truth. I want to believe the lie. It's, it's convenient for me. It's comfortable. And God listens to all of that and he says, I'm willing to forgive it all. I know that you are my enemies, but even as my enemies, I'm willing to give my son that he would give his life, that you might be forgiven of those sins. It's a a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? The wonderful warning, though, Jesus goes on to say, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness well there's an encouragement in that too isn't there those things that you think oh i was way off track back then i'm way off track right now i'm really concerned of my kids and my grandkids and the choices that they're making jesus is saying those things that you think may be unforgivable sins they're not those things i'm perfectly able to forgive like all the rest There's only one thing that's unforgivable. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were looking at what is the work of God being done by the power of God through the Spirit of God and they were saying that is the work and the power and the spirit of the enemy. Now, if you look at the work and the power and the spirit of God and you say that is the work of the enemy, what hope is there for you? How can you turn to God and seek salvation if when you see the things of God, you believe them to be the work of the enemy? Again, it's a logical argument. 
How can you look at the one who would give salvation and believe him to be the one who has only death in his hands and expect to receive anything of salvation? It's not the same, but it's a little bit like a conversation I've had with students in a high school class that say, but why can't I go to heaven if I don't believe in God? I think, whoa, what, what claim do you have on the, the, the heaven of God if you don't believe the one who, who lives there? What desire do you have to be with God, someone that you don't believe? Now, God can forgive that. But these scribes who are so schooled in the, the word of God, they, they come to Jesus and don't believe that he comes by the spirit of God. Now, I want to just take a, a backward step at this point and, and just consider the people who are telling us this story. The author of this book, Mark, is, is attributed to a young man named John Mark. He appears, we think, maybe later in, in the book of Mark. It's, there's a story there in the garden that only appears in the book of Mark. And so maybe he's a young man there in the garden with the disciples. But John Mark was a disciple of Peter. And Peter, in Mark's gospel, is, one of, is the first disciple to be called by Jesus. In other Gospels, there are other disciples that appear first, but in Mark's Gospel, it's Peter. And we looked at it not, not too long ago. Where was it that, that Jesus met Peter? On the shores of the Lake of Galilee, wasn't it? He was there mending his nets, and Jesus said to him, what? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Is that the first time that God said such a thing? This is new to me, but if it's not new to you, give us a, a moment here of grace. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, speaking to people living in the land of Canaan, the land given to them by God, speaking to a people who knew the word of God but weren't interested in being obedient to God. And so his message to them was, God is going to come and punish you. You are no better than the people that God sent out of the land that he might give it to you. Actually, you're worse. And so God is going to spit you out of the land and cut you off. And some of the words he speaks against them sound horrible. But Jeremiah also in that judgment speaks words of hope. I just want to read from Jeremiah 16, verse 14. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, As the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where they have been driven, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. While the people were in Israel... The story of salvation was how God brought them out of Egypt. And Jeremiah is saying there's going to be a story of salvation yet to come when God brings you back from all the lands that he is about to send you into to punish you. And after that day you'll be saying, he is the God who brings his people back. In verse 16, 
God says to Jeremiah, Behold, I am sending out for many fishes, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are always on their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But I will doubly repay their iniquity for their sins, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abomination. God speaks through Jeremiah, there is a time of judgment to come. But then I will send out fishers of men and hunters of men. And they will be the ones who gather my people back to myself. And Peter, I think, would be more familiar with these words than, than you or I when Jesus speaks to him on the shores of Galilee and says, Come, Peter, fisherman, I want to make you a fisher of men. He's not just thinking he wants to change what I fish for. He knows he wants to put me on the mission that God spoke to Jeremiah would one day take place that would even eclipse the stories of salvation of the people being brought out of captivity in Egypt. This is going to be bigger than the stories of Exodus. God is going to draw his people from the nations to himself. And Jesus is asking me to be a fisher of men. I'm going to be one of those. And Peter would be sitting down with Mark talking about that day that Jesus spoke the words of Isaiah and I turned and I followed him. And the days that Jesus went up onto the mountain and called his disciples to himself and named those who would be apostles and gave them the authority to drive out demons and to teach people the things of God. And now Peter is relaying with Mark how there was a day that there was scribes that came out of Jerusalem, people well respected for what they knew about the word of God. And they said that Jesus was doing this stuff in the power of the enemy. And Jesus rebuked them. And he said, there are so many things that you will be forgiven for. In fact, we're on the mission of bringing back the people of Israel to the, the land of promise because God is willing to forgive them. Their punishment is served. He, he's restoring them back to himself. There's only one thing that will hold you back. Confusing what is the work of God and what is the work of the enemy. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we in danger of this blasphemy when we deny the Holy Spirit his power? Because it's not enough just to be people who are familiar with the word of God. The scribes, they had the job of translating it from the Hebrew and, and transcribing it. The Pharisees themselves went to the scribes when they, they wanted to work out the finer points of the law. They knew it. And they sought to challenge Jesus on it all the time and back him into a corner and they never could. And here they accuse him of, of working through the power of the enemy and he says, you guys are guilty of the worst thing imaginable. You can't look at the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of salvation and attribute it to the enemy and, be, and come back from that. And so are we people 
of the word or are we people of the word and the spirit of God? Timothy writes sometime later, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. You don't kind of expect that to be at the end of that list, do you? We can see people are lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient to their parents and those things. And we, we see all those things to be the, the work of the evil one. But to have the appearance of godliness but denying its power, that speaks to the religious of heart that speak platitudes of, of God and, and, and who he is and what they know of him and that sort of thing, but in their hearts deny his power. Jesus wants us not just to be people familiar with his word, but people who are familiar with his work. And how should we be going about that work? Well, Jesus tells us, bind the strong man and then plunder his house. We don't bind the strong man by being familiar with the word of God. When the enemy came to tempt Jesus after his baptism, what was he doing? He was quoting the scriptures at him. The enemy knows the word of God as well. And he can use it to his own measures. So can we. In a false, wrong use of the scriptures but not if we're walking in line with the Spirit. Not if we are standing in the power of the Spirit. Not if we are binding the strong man through our prayers, through our, our worship and service of the Lord. When Jesus says these things to the scribes, his mothers and his brothers finally arrive and they stand outside and they send to him saying, you know, come, you're not eating, you must be out of your mind. And people say, your mother and your brothers are outside and they are seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Kinds of sounds a bit offensive, doesn't it? And at this time it is interesting to hear that, that Mary is a, you know, a bit uncertain of Jesus in his work. And his brothers too are saying he's out of his mind. Brothers who will later be leaders in the church. At this time they're confused about what Jesus is doing and Jesus says who are they but he looks around him and he says here are my mother and my brothers whoever does the will of God he is my mother my brother my sister he who does the will of God you remember that story where Jesus is um, tired and he waits out outside the city by the well and his disciples go into the city to look for food. And they come back and, and they say, Jesus, you know, it's time for you to eat. And Jesus says to them, I have food that you know nothing about. 
And they're, they're confused at, at what's this relationship between the physical and the spiritual. And Jesus clarifies that confusion at that time and says, doing the will of God is food for my soul. And as he looks around at those seated around him, people who haven't had time to eat, he talks about them as gathering around a table as a family. What's important to us isn't just caring for the physical needs, but it's doing the will of God. And so often the scriptures say God is not looking for those who speak of loving God, but those who show their love for God. How? By their love for one another. Don't say you love God while you hate your neighbour. That's showing that you know God and you know him to be a God of love and you know his command that you love him but have no desire to do so. Let's be people who act in the will of God through the power of God by the Spirit of God and then we will be people who fulfill the word of God in the way that we live our daily lives. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for such a wonderful encouragement that though we may have turned away from you and though we may have backslid, though our, our background before we knew you might be of, of things that we, we would yet be ashamed of to speak of even now, that we can be forgiven by you. But Lord, guard us from ever seeing the work of God as anything other than the work of God. Forgive us for the times that we have doubted you and what you can accomplish. Forgive us, Lord, for, for going further than being discerning of spirits, but being deniers of it. Lord, fill our eyes with what is beyond this world and its cares, that we might be people filled with God and his power. Lord, we acknowledge in some of these things we are yet babes, we, we don't fully understand. We're not sure of, of the right first step. But we do know, Lord, what it is that you're calling us to do. Those that you want us to reach. Those needs that you want us to meet. Those prayers that you want us to speak. So call us to yourself as brothers and sisters and mothers, that we might meet with you, that we might be fed by you, that we would be led by you in the power and work of the Holy Spirit and by the word of God we pray. Amen.